Now this morning, our second major sermon text and what counts as the fourth lesson in the service is found in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 16. The word of the Lord reads, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Father in heaven, we yearn for you to give to us this morning that thing which we need, which is the work of your spirit through the scriptures. We pray that you would please renew in us a sense of wonder and gratitude for the gift of the Savior among us. We pray that you would teach us how best to live in light of this text and in light of the humility of the shepherds, please prepare us to receive whatever good things you might give us in the next few days as all simply foretastes tiny shadows of the much richer gift of everlasting life. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the United States, the period roughly from 1840 to 1920 has been called the Gilded Age. And it's been said that during that time, the number of truly elite people in this country, the number of truly influential Americans, were however many fit into Caroline Astor's ballroom. She was tremendously influential, and she could get about 400 people in there. And for that reason, if you were a would-be socialite, a burgeoning tycoon, you would fall over yourself and go to great lengths to be counted worthy of an invitation to be under her roof. But then we look in the gospel, and when the creator of the universe, the one from whom the angels hide their faces, comes down among us, where does he take up his court? Not in a ballroom, all adorning gold, but in a stable in a backwater town, probably in a cave in the side of a hill. The maker of the mountains condescends to be placed within a manger, a food trough for farm animals. This is the Lord of glory, and this is the humility of the gospel. 
When he comes, to whom does he send his invitation? Not to the Caroline Astors of the world. Not to Caesar Augustus. Not to any of the great scribes of that day like Gamaliel. He sends his invitation to be at Christ's birth, the birth of the prince of the cosmos, to unnamed shepherds working that night, a long shift in the field. And why does he do that? To underscore to us the gracious character of the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Even as the angel says, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The good news of the gospel is not to the rich for the sake of their riches, nor is it to the poor for the sake of their poverty. The good news of the gospel is not to the beautiful or to the talented or to the influential for any of those things. Christ brings the gift of salvation to his people, and he brings it to them graciously. Now, In the first place, what does that mean for us? That means to really receive and to rejoice in the meaning of Christmas, you must, first of all, set aside anything of yourself that you would boast in. You have to receive the Christmas invitation as though written across it is simply to sinners on account of the mercy of God. And if you'll take that invitation in hand, then you are welcome to attend. But if that is not good enough for you, then you will not find yourself among the people of God. Now, of course, there are those in his kingdom who occupy higher stations and to whom he's given greater gifts and who will be all the more responsible for how they use them. There is difference within his kingdom. But on the other hand, this means to us that if God himself is content to be in the presence of these shepherds, then we should not count ourselves above the presence of any person. God has counted all kinds precious in his sight. And so the birth of Jesus reminds us then of that as well. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, a man who had much that you would think he could boast about. Indeed, I count everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Think about the weight of those words. He says, I want to be found in the presence of God in Jesus Christ, not with anything based on my own good actions, my own good intentions, my own heart of willingness to obey the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean at all the apostle doesn't desire to be obedient. But those are not the things that he thinks makes him acceptable or pleasing to God. He says, but only that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Christ has come into the world that we might be united to him simply by believing in his all-sufficiency. That is the focus of this time of the year, right? That's why the world continues to reverberate with gratitude and to give one another gifts. Even those who have forgotten the reason nevertheless reflect the impact of that message upon the world. We have not forgotten the incredible generosity of a God who wants to receive people 
graciously. On the other hand, the shepherds don't seem to sense the grace immediately. They were filled with great fear. And why? For the same reason I think that you or I would be filled with great fear if you were out late at night in a field and long before flashlights, they probably just have a a fire going and they're on the alert for wolves or any other threat to the flock, bad men, when suddenly, wong, light, like they never knew, and a being that they have never met. Of course they're filled with fear. But I do think it's much more than that. The presence of the angels throughout the Old Testament have a kind of self-authenticating source of knowing that this is from God. And the angels in their character, in their mission, in their being, communicate to an almost overwhelming degree the otherness, the righteousness, and the power of God. They are his mobile majesty. And very frequently in the Old Testament, as these shepherds would have been familiar with, when an angel shows up, it's judgment time. These are agents of execution. And so it's understandable that they'd be filled with great fear at seeing this angel in their presence. And at this point, it's only one. And think about that. If these shepherds were so struck with terror in the presence of a single angel, how do you actually think that you will feel when inevitably you appear not before one angel, but in the very presence of the living God who made all the hosts of them? Do not suppress the truth. As truly as you have a conscience, it bears witness to the fact that all deeds must come into judgment. There will be a day of accounting. This is what it means for you that you can't shake the sense some things truly are right, some things truly are wrong, because there is a moral lawgiver who will do right in the world. And when human beings appear before him, do we really think they won't feel terror? The world will tremble. And the angels are a foretaste of that. But it's for our benefit to pass through a real grappling with that sense of the reverent terror of coming into the presence of a God who sees and knows all and must do right because he is holy. On a day like this or tomorrow, we have made plans, I imagine, most of us to have special meals, probably big meals. And what a waste it would be, and perhaps this is your case for a physical reason or some other reason, to not have an appetite. What a lost opportunity to have the best food of the year and to just have no desire to eat it. A person who has not passed by the work of the Holy Spirit into a true sense of the terror of appearing before God in our sins has no appetite for the true gospel. But it's in recognizing, no, I don't deserve to be in his presence, that we are filled with a hunger for a grace that goes beyond anything you could ever do. And you say, put that on my plate. Give me a Christ who is all-sufficient, And then we receive. And so this terror is not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing to receive the joy of the gospel in our state of sinners. And now consider the announcement. Verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is so much in those few words. So much significance in each of these phrases and terms. The word Christ alone, it literally means one who is anointed to hold a special office, and it calls to mind how God sent the prophet Samuel to go and to first anoint King Saul and later to anoint King David. And it signified God setting someone apart and pouring out upon them his Holy Spirit to enable them for what they were called to. The kings in the Old Testament weren't supposed to be tyrants who did their own thing. They were anointed and empowered by God to minister gifts from the Holy Spirit to the people of God. And so this angel is announcing, one is among you who is the anointed one, and Christ comes in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. No prophet was sent to lay a hand on him and to put oil there. He has what was signified. He has the fullness of the Spirit. And he's called the Savior, which simply means the one who will deliver us from all that oppresses, from all that brings danger. And he is the Lord, meaning he is in charge of all. But perhaps the sweetest words here are the ones that we overlook. Unto you. Because can you imagine if the term had been changed and the angel had said, this day in the city of David is born Christ, the Lord, against you. There is a day when that will be true for those who have not known Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is vivid. The king will return, and those who did not know and believe the gospel, who continued on in their own path, doing exactly what they desire, to be Lord to themselves, they will find a Christ who is against them. And that's just. There's nothing inappropriate about that. But what these shepherds hear in the midst of their fear is, to you. And I exhort you this morning, through faith, receive those words for yourself, to you, not just to those shepherds long ago, to you, and to you, and to you, and to you, to all of us is born a Savior for all people, all of his people, as many as turn to him in faith. Now imagine their experience. The angels depart. Some of us have been through some harrowing experiences, maybe a car crash, or who knows at the moment, but after it, you're just trembling from the adrenaline. I can only imagine they're shaking. What just happened? This is amazing. And they go down to Bethlehem to see, and they find just as the angel has said, there is a child wrapped in swaddling cloths and a manger. No, that wasn't a normal thing. That's why this works as a sign. It was not the usual course to take your child and put them in a food trough. It was humiliation. This is where Christ begins. This is the irony of the gospel with the creator coming down in such a way. They find this sign there, and they see Mary. And I can only imagine, the text doesn't tell us, but it seems natural with the limited information that they have that they look at Joseph, and one of them says, Are you the father? And he says, I tell you the truth. We're betrothed, but I've never been with this woman. 
But an angel came to me as well as to her and told us that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit, just as we were told in Isaiah. And I was told that I would call this child Emmanuel. And they understood, there wasn't a name people were just called that has a literal meaning. It literally means, I was told to call him, God is with us. And that he would be the savior who would save us from our sins. Can we even begin to imagine how we would feel in that situation? To see an infant and have someone tell you, not just this child is destined to be great like an Alexander or a Caesar. Somehow this child is God with us. Somehow this child is going to deliver us not just from political oppression and all of the ills of a broken world, but from the very thing that has the potential to separate you for eternity from the presence of God, from your sin, which is worse than all the other maladies of this age. God is with us. What joy would they feel, even if they don't fully grasp it and understand it, but by faith, they're laying hold of the promise. And then what comes next for the shepherds? I would like to imagine they stay there perhaps the entirety of the night and then dawn is coming. What now? The text doesn't actually tell us. And so we are left to surmise the life of the shepherds. And because it doesn't tell us anything, it seems reasonable to me that they went on to remain shepherds. And they stayed poor. And perhaps from time to time, they were oppressed by Roman occupiers. And maybe there were those people who mocked them when they tried to tell about that time. They saw a host of angels in a field. And it was made all the harder to prove their point because not long after this, the child and parents vanished down to Egypt. And then they grow old and they die. Where then is the great joy that the angels promised? But this is to underscore the nature of joy in the gospel. The nature of joy that we should associate with Christmas, though it may include wonderful meals, relatives visiting us, though it might have gifts of different kinds, special trips, the nature of the joy is not tied to having or having not the good things of this age. They had great joy, and I would petition that they have greater joy than all the joy of a person who lived fat in this life but didn't have hope for the age to come. The hope, as it says in verse 14, peace among those with whom God is pleased. And that calls to mind words that you find echoed throughout the Gospels when Jesus is on the mountain and he's transfigured before his disciples, Peter, James, and John. They hear a voice from heaven. And the Father says, Behold, my Son with whom I am well pleased. Why is God pleased with us? Now, of course, those who are adopted in Jesus Christ are enabled by the Holy Spirit to do things that please him. But the basis of his pleasure is the fact that he has counted believers in Jesus Christ, one with him. And so when you hear this, again, you have to, on this day and the season, receive it for yourself. Peace 
among those with whom God is pleased. There are those of you this morning, I am certain, because I know my heart, and I know the scripture, who are struggling to imagine that God is pleased with you. And appropriately so. You're awful. And so am I. If we compare ourselves against the righteousness of God who makes the angels blush, but he can look at you and he can say, from eternity I purposed my own pleasure and my pleasure was to bring you into Christ. And that then should be the basis of our desire to pour out gifts to him and to one another. Not to earn God's pleasure, but because he is pleased, we can live graciously and generously towards others. It's our prayer then that this day, the Lord would lift your heart to join the angels in this praise. I don't have a reason to think they ever stopped. They went off into heaven, but I imagine that they continue this same praise to the very moment. And may God help us throughout this day then to give glory to God in the highest. Let's ask his blessing even now. Heavenly Father, you are worthy above all for praise. Glory to you in the highest. We bring nothing to our own salvation except the need of it. It was you who worked in your people by the Spirit, the same Spirit who gave the miracle of conception in the virgin's womb. That same Spirit worked in us the miracle of second birth. We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you that we can praise you with a clean conscience in spite of our sins. And we ask that you would purify our lives unto holiness. That as long as we persist in this age like the shepherds, we would continue in faith. That we would not make the good things of this life the standard for which we will honor you. Our Lord, we ask that you would please work in the hearts of any who have not been regenerated and converted that you would humble them to recognize their need and to be amazed at your working in history and to look forward to the life to come. All of this we ask in Jesus' name and God's people pray, amen. Amen.